Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. Well, friends, we are in the middle of a series uh, talking about siblings and sibling rivalries uh, throughout Scripture. And we have we started off with Cain and Abel at the very beginning, and we we're now in um, working into talking about David's family. We talked last week about David and his brothers. Um, so, Sarah, where are we going exactly with David's family today? So today we are talking about David's children. Children, and this is a quick disclaimer. Today's topic may be a little bit more PG-13 than normal. So if you are listening with very small children or you just don't want to hear about us talking about um, some characters inflicting sexual violence on other characters, um, you might want to just either skip this episode or listen to it later when small ears are not listening. Um, Because, uh, yeah, we are talking about David's children. And David has many children because uh, David had many wives or concubines or other people who bore him children. Um, I think Erica mentioned before we um, actually started recording that the Bible names 20 children of David. And we do not know how many are unnamed. We at least know of 20. We're going to focus on um four of David's children, um, Solomon, who is the son of David and Bathsheba, um, and then Absalom and his whole sister Tamar, and then another son named um, Amnon. So that's who we're going to focus on today. So we're going to Back up very quickly. We know that most people are probably going to be familiar with the story of Bathsheba, but in case you're not, um, this is a quick two-sentence summary um, that one day, King David, while all the kings had gone to war and he stayed home, he looked out from a high place in his palace and he looked down and he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop and thought, oh, she's pretty. So he sent for her had sex with her, and then sent her home. And a while later, she sent a message home, a message to, to him of saying, hey, my husband's at war for you, and I'm now pregnant by you. And so King David's like, okay, I got to solve this. I got to solve this. So he sends for her husband uh, to come home and to give him a report, and also while he's there, presumably to have sex with his wife so that he would think that the baby is his. Um, but he refuses to go and visit his wife. So David's like, ah, oh, that didn't solve the problem. So instead, he sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front line to die. And then could therefore marry Bathsheba and finally solve the problem. And, and he, does it in a particular, he does it in a particularly cowardly way, David does. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly, like, sniveling and cowardly and just icky all around. Because he sends the note, uh, a, a note to uh, Uriah's commanding officer saying, the guy who's holding this note, send him out to the front lines and then withdraw the rest of your forces so he's going to get killed. Seals that note, puts it in Uriah's hand and says, here, give this to your commanding officer. It's a really important, super top secret message. So almost like a Shakespearean plot device, 
Uriah carries the message himself that basically seals his own death because David is so much of a coward and he needs to cover up his own terrible action. Yeah. So, so David, this is not the story with David being at his best. Like time and time again, he's kind of failing and falling short of, I think, everybody's expectations. And so eventually this baby is born. And on the seventh day of its life, it dies as divine punishment. Um, and it, which is problematic in its own way to think about a child dying because of the sin of the parents. But um, uh, somebody, uh, who comes? Nathan? Nathan comes mm-hmm. and tells David basically off and saying, hey, what you did was wrong, and this is why this happened. You need to repent. And so David does, and he repents. And he consoles his wife and has sex with her again. And she had another son who he named Solomon, but Nathan, for some reason, decided to name him Jedediah. But the Bible is pretty consistent. We call him Solomon. And that is the birth of Solomon. This is one of those like weird details that like, you know, you'll, you'll probably win, you know, Bible trivia night at your local church or, you know, barbecue wing place. uh, If you know this, that Solomon, everybody knows is King Solomon. The moment he is born, almost, God, like, uh, overturns this. Yeah, that's fine. You can name Solomon, but I'm giving another name. And Solomon also goes by the name Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. So even though rarely in the rest of the actual biblical text do we get that name used for him, it's sort of like God overruling David right from the begin- from the get-go. Yeah, you call him whatever you want. I'm calling him Jedediah. Um, so, okay, so we, 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 we sort of set the, the table that David has multiple wives already. That even by the time this affair with Bathsheba, and mind you, this is breaking relationship in every possible way because David's already married, Bathsheba's already married. Like this is this is there, there there's no part of that whole situation that is good. Um, and David already is married at least to two wives before Bathsheba, a woman named Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L in our English Bibles, and Abigail, who's got her own interesting story as well, um, who had been married to a guy before whose name was Nabal, which is Hebrew for fools. I mean, it's just like the, the, the stories are weird. He, she was married to a guy who, who's named Numskull, and then he dies, and he she gets married to King David, and that's, everybody's cool with that. So he's already got at least two wives uh, before even Bathsheba is in the picture and has children with those other women before Mm -hmm. even Solomon uh, is born, but before Bathsheba is in the picture. So like what we thought earlier stories about sibling rivalries were messy. No, that was like the minor leagues before we got like Cain and Abel seems super easy to deal with by contrast. Now that's just two brothers who are fighting with each other. Now we've got layers upon layers of terribleness and terribleness coming from one of the people we were all led to believe was like the hero of the Bible, who, you know, is the guy after God's own heart and has moments like that, but also has really, really terrible moments, too. Well, and the two wives you mentioned, Steve, are not even the wives of the other sons of David that we're going to end up talking about. Right. (laughs) Can you introduce us to any of those? Who are the other names we're going to need to know? They're not really names we're going to need to know, and I have them in front of me, but I am not good at pronouncing biblical Hebrew names. Um, 
So it's I Noma and Ma'aka, I think, are the names of Ammon's mother and Absalom and Tamar's mother. Yeah, that's right. Don't quote me on that because, again, my Hebrew is not good. <laughs> and, and in fairness, while there are other biblical names that have become common in our culture, Ma'aka is not one of them that no. we are likely to have as a, a popular a popular baby name in 21st century America. Unlike, say, Abigail or Mary or Elizabeth, all those, you know, those, yep, we, we use those Bible names, but not Ma'aka. <laughs> no. So, uh, complicated. Yeah. And so what frequently happens when kings have multiple wives and multiple concubines and all of these wives and concubines are having children is that the the mothers will often play the political game not on their for their own interests but on the interest of their children mm-hmm. so mothers will often do a lot of like kind of sneaky things historically to try to promote their children because with that many wives and children and et cetera, like the, um, who is going to take, who's going to be the next King is kind of constantly in question because um, it could very well be that the son that everybody expects might mysteriously die of an illness or (laughs) might be found out that he and his mother were part of a plot to overthrow the, the father, therefore committing treason. So there's a lot of like politics. Once you get that many wives and children, because the question of succession is on everybody's mind. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because while while this is, is maybe certainly something that runs throughout all of human history, it, it it's something we we might not have have learned in the Sunday school version of the stories of the kings of Israel. That like yeah, the, the stories of the biblical kings are rife with this kind of competition, and it seems like part of the problem is this kind of a system itself of like having not only the multiple wives kind of a thing, but also where one of the children of the current king is expected to be the new one and that like that 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 breeds competition um, and and sort of a cutthroat uh, suspicion among the competing uh princes and princesses so to speak um especially because there's the fear of whoever does eventually ascend to the throne is basically making a claim of, you know, like that they have the right and that everybody else's competition, the assumption is they're going to want to wipe out all the competitors. So you want to be the one person who's left standing. And if you're the, the wife of a possible competing prince or princess for the throne, yeah, you want to, you want to make sure your kid gets to the throne, not just because you want them to be in power, but because you want them to not be dead. And part of the, the stakes of this game are whoever isn't, uh, the new king is likely to get killed by whoever does become king because they're going to want to consolidate power and wipe out competition, which later becomes an issue in the story of David and his children. Yep. So this is kind of the atmosphere. This is the atmosphere that David's children are growing up in. And for sure, I would speculate that your full siblings, you're going to have a stronger relationship with than your half siblings. Um, that, you know, if you are the sister 
to one of your brothers, you're going to probably be supporting your full brother more than your half brother. But even then, you're probably going to kind of make nice with everybody in the hopes that whoever becomes king will look favorably on you, that you will, you know, manage to survive because you're just a sister. You're not going to try to become a queen. Um, and I would suspect that that is maybe possibly why Tamar got into some of the trouble that she did was because she was, you know, not necessarily playing, trying to play favorites, but that she was nice and loving to all of her brothers. And that got her in trouble because one of her brothers had inappropriate feelings for her. So Tamar is the full sister to Absalom. Like, they're full siblings. They have the same mother. And her brother, Amnon, develops romantic feelings for her, or at least sexual desire for her. Mm -hmm. And he's all torn up about it because he's all like, look at my beautiful sister. She's a virgin. Like, I can't have her. Like, woe is me. And one of his friends was all like, nah, here's what you do. You just go lay in bed, pretend to be sick, and then Tamar, who is a wonderful girl, will come and take care of you because that's what wonderful, nice girls do is that they come and take care of you when you're sick. And Amnon is like, oh, yeah, what a great plan. And so he does this thing and Tamar comes to take care of him because she is fantastic. And and he rapes her. And this this makes things especially complicated because uh, Amnon is the oldest, is the firstborn of any of David's kids, I think. So he would have been like the logical mm-hmm. first choice for next in line for the throne. And now he's done this thing that is is not hidden. I mean, like this becomes public knowledge pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, like, there's this scandalous piece of it. He uh, is is it, it, it's just a, a mess for Amnon, and sort of sets up that he's not going to be a good candidate for next king. On top of that, uh, Tamar's brother Absalom is upset about what's happened to his sister, and especially because it feels like, oh my goodness, he, she she totally got tricked into going to visit, you know, poor sick Amnon. Um, and then on top of that was violated so terribly that like this, this is, this is scandalous and, and Absalom is itching for revenge. But David won't let him have revenge. Not directly. So again, like plot twist, uh, Absalom works out a system where he gets Amnon, uh, he, he gets some of the, the like, royal servants around Amnon to basically get him drunk and kill him when he's drunk. Um, or to use the politeful phrasing of the new revised standard, when he is merry with wine. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, why, brief side note, while uh, our various Christian traditions have different perspectives on the use or consumption of alcohol, it is at least worth noting that if you get married with wine, there is a possibility the royal servants might murder you if you've committed a horrendous crime. Um, uh, so, so Absalom gets his revenge, but sort of like in a sneaky behind-the-scenes way by making the servants, the, basically the bodyguards of Amnon, kill him when he's drunk. So again, like this is like right out of an episode of Game of Thrones for folks who are fans of that series. This is the red wedding all over again. <clears throat> and that now this this sets up additional tension because now you've got 
Amnon, the firstborn, is dead, he would have been the likely first candidate for succession for David. Um, David had to fight for a while to even get the position of being king over all Israel because there's like there's a whole story we skipped over about his succession. Saul had come before him. We talked about last time. But when Saul died, Saul's son started to reign for a while, Ishbaal, for a couple of years. And David eventually just got his own tribe, Judah, to say, now nah, we're just going to have David as our king. And eventually David becomes king of all the tribes. So this has not been a smooth transition of power. And now we're left with Absalom has killed the crown prince and uh, Absalom is upset with his dad, David, because David didn't take a firmer stance against the older son. And that sets up a tension now between Absalom and his father, David. Yeah, this, this, like, this, it feels like it, re- it, re- it requires a chart. So we, we have labeled this maybe PG-13, not just because of the subject matter, but just to keep the, the players straight. You have to have a, a, a college degree just to, just to try and keep all the, the players and the names straight, it seems like. Um, in, in fact, at some point then, uh, Absalom decides not only that he is upset that his dad didn't do a, a good enough job defending his sister Tamar, but uh, Absalom sort of decides that uh, David isn't a very good king at all over all of this and basically starts a civil war. He goes to a city called Hebron and um, he lets the official the official press release be he's just going there for a celebration, but he sets up a coup there and he says, when I give the signal, that's, that's when you send out the news I've been... Uh, uh, anointed king, and I've taken power. I'm claiming the right of of uh, the throne here in Hebron. So this begins a civil war where now Absalom gets generals and some armies behind him, and David has to muster some armies and generals behind him. And there's now civil war, even during David's own reign, fighting each other for who's going to be king. Yeah, I think I think the point for me when it always feels like this goes off the rails is. Like, they're not even waiting for David to die anymore to, like, figure out succession. Absalom is definitely taking this into his own hands and is just like, nope, nope, it's going to be me. It's going to be now. And now, this this is one of those points for me that... that um, maybe helps me put into perspective what eventually happens, that there does come to be a, a plan for a dynasty and why that might be better than the chaos that is about to en- en- ensue here. Because when Absalom declares war against David, and now you've got father and son fighting against each other, the whole country is torn apart. I mean, like, they're, who's, who, you know, who's going to command your allegiance? They're all fighting amongst one another. There, there's all this bad blood. Both sides have good reasons why they think they're the rightful ruler. Absalom's like, David's a terrible king because look what he let happen in his own house. David's like, but I'm the rightful ruler. I got anointed all this and I'm still alive. Thank you very much, son. Um, Later on, when um, things do quiet down, um, eventually there's going to become a policy or a plan that David's descendants will will be on the throne. There's there's this old conversation that David gets to have with God. Um, David uh, gets promised by God that one of his descendants will be on the throne forever, as long as there's a throne in Jerusalem. And there's this basically unbroken chain of Davidic descendants who are on the throne in the, what becomes the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, that doesn't mean that's always an easy transition, because obviously even Absalom is a descendant of David uh, and still is, is fighting with his dad. But there's points where I think, you know what, I, I kind of get it why if you lived in ancient times, at least having a 
um, a consistent dynasty would feel like more stability than the chaos of one coup after another. And and later in the Northern Kingdom, that's going to be what plagues them, is you'll get one king who will reign for a while with just enough power to keep everybody else quiet. Maybe you'll get a couple of generations out of that family, and then another violent coup will come along and kill that family, and, and it just it, it's constant, unending bloodshed. And it makes it makes me, for at least for a moment, grateful about the peaceful transition of power that is part of uh, our 200-year history as a country, too. That for all the ways we get upset at the way politics gets played in our country and the way people are upset about what feels like the unending campaign season that we are permanently living in, that at the very least, we have a tradition of not killing each other uh, to get the next person to be in charge with the same kind of terrible bloodshed that 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 was part of the the people of Israel um, in in this time period and, and Absalom and David sort of reminds me of that I guess yeah and for sure when coups happen when civil wars happen to figure out who's going to be the next leader it disrupts every level of life um, because the common folk are being recruited into these armies so they're not being able to be home to to like do the farming to run the trade um, so the economy is disrupted a whole generation of sons may die um, it, it affects every level of life. Um, and, but eventually even this coup ends, Absalom eventually is killed in battle. And I think at least for me, one of the redeeming moments is when David hears of his son's death and he, he mourns, he is heartbroken that this son of his has died. Um, and even you know, says, would I have died instead of you, oh, Aklam, my son, my son. Like, that this is like, even though they've been at war and Absalom was trying to, like, overthrow him so that he could become king, David is still very sad that his son has died. Yeah, and, and this this moment is one that is is so rife with complex and even contradictory emotions. Because, like, on the one hand, nobody, there's no, there's no, um, like all of a sudden Absalom seems like he becomes a much more sympathetic or tragic character instead of a villain. And like, I think that's important too, that like it would be tempting to treat this as, well, Absalom is trying to break the social order. The right King is still alive. You don't fight the, the King. You're the villain Absalom. But no, I mean like he, he, he's, Push to this because he's convinced justice requires it. And then he, nobody gets this final climactic like sword fight scene with Absalom. He dies getting his neck hung in a tree. Like he's riding on a horseback through tree branches and uh, the, the mule he's riding on uh, gets caught in the oak and his head gets caught between the branches and he chokes, he, he dies hanging in a tree. And later on, one of David's generals, gets wind that they heard Absalom is left hanging in a tree and in a particularly unpleasant moment stabs him in the heart with three spears just just to make sure he's super dead uh even though he's already dead from hanging um but uh at this David is upset at the death of his son and Joab the the basically the heavy who's done this final extra super dead stabbing is upset with David and says like, Hey, we fought this battle for you. All, all us officers, we put our lives on the line and you're more upset that your enemy died. Like now they're all upset with David that he hasn't been more 
rah rah, I'm glad my enemy's dead. Like like this is this is a difficult spot because yes, yes, Absalom is his enemy, but Absalom is also his son. And it, 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 to me, it it is this difficult reminder that even the people that um, you want to label your worst enemy are also human and are somebody's son and maybe somebody's father or mother or daughter and that there's we, we sometimes forget that we want to make enemies into the faceless them and david can't do that even though this is somebody who sought his life that he he grieves over his son even when that upsets the rest of the people on his side part of what this does though is it kind of clears the way for a, a sort of resetting of the table of who will be the next uh, king or who will come in line and that kind of begins to set things up that there will be uh, a way for for Solomon to be cleared uh, the way to be the, the new um, uh, heir apparent, right? Yep. There does come to be something of, a, of another round of struggle between um, others of, of David's children. As, as we move from the books of Samuel into what we call the books of Kings, um, you get Adonijah is now uh, sort of contending, and then you got uh, uh, Solomon is, is uh, another possible candidate. And eventually there's a sort of settling on it's going to be Solomon is going to be the new crown prince. He'll be the one who succeeds David. But this is definitely upending the usual order because, again, mm-hmm. Solomon is the, the son of I don't know, wife four or five at least. I mean, like, so like this is this is not like going back to whoever's the oldest gets dibs on it. This is now just moving toward David gets to pick. He's deciding it will be uh, Solomon uh, will be the next uh, king after him. And eventually Solomon starts to consolidate power around that. And I think, again... Going back to the wives being political players, I think that's very true with Solomon's succession. That here David is on his deathbed, like he's old, he's getting ready to die. And Bathsheba comes to visit her husband and David says, what do you wish? And Bathsheba says, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God saying, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king and he shall sit on my throne. But now suddenly this other son has become king, though you, my Lord, uh, is still alive um, and you didn't know it. And she goes on to like describe how all of the things that this other son added, 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 I'm not sure how I pronounce his name. All of the things that he's doing while his father while his father is bedridden. And it's kind of this like interesting political ploy that Bathsheba is suddenly playing of like, hey, this son is kind of acting like king. And by the way, didn't you say at one point that you wanted my son to become king? Which he may not have ever said. It was just kind of like throwing it out there. And David is just like, oh, my goodness, you are right. And he like, that's how it's decided that Solomon is going to become king is because Bathsheba went in there and played a political game. And even that doesn't end the political gamesmanship, because even eventually once David dies and Solomon's on the throne, uh, one of the 
leftover discarded, didn't make the cut sons of David, Adonijah, comes to Bathsheba, who is now mother of the new king Solomon, and says, hey, uh, I totally get it. Solomon's king. I'm not going to fight you on that. But um, there's this lady I'd like to be uh, to be given as my wife. Uh, her name is Abishag the Shuhamite, because that's an awesome name. And... Um, there's political weight to her. Like he's, he's asking for her not because he's like fallen madly in love with her, but because she's another power broker because who she is and who she's connected with could possibly give him more clout that if something bad or unfortunate should happen to Solomon, he can step back in as a good contender for the throne again. Like this is, this is all people at their absolute most power hungry worst. And we sometimes forget this is, this is in the midst of the story of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, and I can't remember this correctly. I think Bathsheba said something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have her as wife. But then she like turns around and makes that woman Solomon's wife. (laughs) And and I think too, that like when, when Bathsheba goes to Solomon and says, Hey, uh, your half brother Adonijah wanted to have uh, Abishag for a wife. Uh, Solomon's like, he can, he can tell what's up. And he's like, wait a second, this is a power grab. Should I just give the kingdom to him too? Um, and then he recites like all of her previous allegiances and who she was connected with. And yeah, so like this is this, I I guess to me, like, again, for all the ways that, um, I get frustrated with the political system of the world we live in. Uh, and there's still lots of ways it is rotten and full of corruption. I'm grateful that we don't live the, the, the drama that plays out this way in quite the same way. And that at least there is some attempt to have transparency in the kind of world that we live or the culture we live in that, um, when people try and do crooked, rotten things like this, there are people whose job is to call attention to it and to say, hey, this crooked, rotten thing is not okay. In a way, it feels like the role that prophets like Nathan play in David's story is like that. That's the, the best check and balance against that in the biblical story in a way that like what we expect news outlets and media to do at their best for all the ways they can mess up too. like that. They're meant to be a check and balance on people in power. Uh, and, and that's the role that like Nathan or other prophets in these stories have. They're supposed to be the truth tellers who aren't eligible for power themselves, but are there to call the, the kings when they make bad decisions to account and to make it public so that there's this, you can't cover this up anymore. Yeah, as we're talking about all the, the chaos that has led to Solomon being king and all the, the power plays and everything going on. And, and I'm thinking back on the other sibling rivalries we've talked about and the reversals we've talked about. Really, David's is the only one. When David becomes king over all of his brothers, he is the only one in which God is playing a very pertinent, like God is the one that chose him. Mm-hmm. But all these sibling rivalries and reversals we've been talking about over the past few weeks have come because Mostly, with maybe the exception of of Cain and Abel, a mother interfering. (laughs) Um, There's certainly been like this recurring pattern of the mothers knowing that they are advocating for what's what they think is is going to put their kid in the better position. So going back to Rebecca or Rachel and Leah, uh, that yeah, there is certainly that recurring pattern. Um, And like I, I want to uplift at least. Hagar back in the story of Abraham as a, as someone who is uh 
I, I don't I don't get the sense that she's conniving or scheming so much as like she's been made a pawn and mm-hmm. plays the the bad set of cards she's been dealt as well as possible. But yeah, pretty quickly the the people the the mothers who have power use it for the sake of their kids in a way that they want to say is good and fair and upright because they're just protecting their kids. But very quickly it becomes and I don't care who who we have to step on along the way um, to get my kid in a comfortable position and that that's start sounding alarms for me, I guess. And just that God still uses, you know, these children of these manipulative mothers um, to keep his line going, to keep the line of Abraham going. Um, It's just something that kind of, you know, I don't think I picked up on that until we started this series. Now I'm like watching all these mothers, you know, pull these power plays and be like, Oh wow! Um, <laughs> really, God didn't say Solomon was going to be king. Bathsheba did. <laughs> it it does seem interesting to me that, like, at their best, the kings of Israel were supposed to understand that they were supposed to be servant leaders, and very quickly got that got thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And without rehearsing all the long list of uh, complaints that God and Samuel give at the beginning of when they want to have a king again. Like this is the warning God gives is that if you guys end up having kings, this is going to be the problem. People are going to see that's a way to power and to have a comfortable life. And they're going to grab for that. And they're not going to care who else pays the price for what they do. Not only other royal contenders, but like Sarah said, when, when it comes to a civil war, that means you've got competing factions now drafting people mm-hmm. from their regular you know, day jobs and now they're not farming their land or you know, providing for their kids. They're going off to fight and killing each other, killing their neighbors because they all have these competing allegiances and the land is just left in ruins in the meantime. It's, it's terrible all around. And I, I, I guess I think one of the things that's valuable for me, as, as unpleasant as it is to read these stories, is to see how very, very often we want to make stories of war into a clear good guys and bad guys. One side has the white hats mm-hmm. and one side has the black hats because that's how the storytelling so often goes in the way we tell stories about wars in our history, right? So like, you know, we tell World War II is good guys fighting Nazis and there's like, yeah, okay, yeah, we should all stop Nazis. Um, or we, we, the story of civil war is slavery good uh, or slavery bad and th- these are these are the competing sides. But so often in other circumstances, war is a whole lot messier and we later want to project the here's the clear moral. We were we were the right mm-hmm. ones and those are the bad guys. When at least in David and Absalom's case, they both have a strong case to make about what's the right or just thing here and who is on the side of justice here. And they both have pretty uh, glaring failures and faults, too. Are there any other things that you think we ought to be uh, connections we ought to be making for our lives? Uh, I mean, because so much of our modern life is is very different. We don't have the the same bloody contest for monarchy uh, like in um, in David and Absalom's days. Are there other things that that like are are maybe takeaways for us in this this story? Be nice to your siblings. <laughs> don't rape them. Don't kill them. Don't go to war against them. Good, good policy. And may, maybe even earlier, like Amnon's like uh, assumption because he's the crown prince, he can do whatever he wants to his sister Tamar. Like there's a certain like, and I don't think I don't think it's just because he's the crown prince, but there is this assumption that maybe just uh, women in general are there for his uh, objectification. But like that, anytime we treat other human beings like they are things or objects, not like human beings. 
things go awry and we may not immediately pay the price for it. It may be something that takes a while, but that this is maybe the one of the fundamental ways we human beings screwed up is treating other people like they're objects there for our use or gratification, not as human beings. Yeah. People are not disposable. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that seems like that's a awfully simplified moral to come out with after all this messiness, but Maybe none of us are going to be fighting for a position of uh, royalty on a throne one day, but we are constantly thrown temptations to treat other people like they are means rather than ends, like that people are just, like you say, disposable. And it comes in a million different ways, uh, and they're usually subtle temptations. But to be able to say, no, the, 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 the Bible gives us this example of like things go awry very, very quickly when, when we don't treat others as made in the image of God. Well, uh, dare, dare we wade further next time into um, other biblical siblings? Shall, shall we uh, continue this, this series, uh, seeing what other trouble we can get ourselves into next time? Yeah, we at least have to talk about some siblings in the New Testament. That sounds good. Maybe, maybe there will be less spears. <laughs> well, if indeed you're willing to join us next time, we hope you'll, you'll join us in what will probably be a less PG-13 conversation next time. But join us here in Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.